Well, as I mentioned before, we find ourselves in Matthew 22, and this is the last time we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel until we revisit it in the season of Lent. We've been traveling with Jesus through the account uh, that Matthew gives us for, I want to say, three and a half, four years, something like that, on and off over those years. And so it's been an uh, amazing opportunity to uh, get a glimpse of Jesus through the lens of Matthew. And it's fitting that if we're going to take a break for five or six months from Matthew, that we are looking at a parable that deals with the kingdom of God. It's fitting because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew says it, is what Jesus talks about most in his uh, life and ministry in Matthew's gospel. It's the thing that he has come to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into our world. So I want to invite you to pray with me as we get started. Lord Jesus, as we encounter your good news in the form of a parable, open our blind eyes, unstop our deaf ears, and soften any hard-heartedness that is within our chests. Holy Spirit, do your work of transformation in us, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew? Chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. So again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them. And killed them. Now the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look around, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We have encountered many, many parables over the years of walking through Matthew together. And almost every time we start a series in parables, or it's been a while since we have come up to a parable, I like to remind us what parables are about. Generally speaking, Parables are stories that are told to get a reaction from the hearer. Jesus tells parables to get those who he's telling the parable to, to do something. Change the way they're thinking, change the way they're behaving, maybe both. Parables 
are sometimes used to disarm us. You know, sometimes if you just use the direct approach by telling people uh, A, B, and C, they're blocked to what it is you're trying to say. So Jesus tells these stories that can kind of get in behind people's defenses and disarm them. So that's one type of parable Jesus tells. Sometimes parables are intentionally cryptic. You have to really think about them to get the meaning. And and sometimes Jesus tells that type of parable to get us to own it is what he's saying. Uh, All of you who are in education know that if you just tell someone a bunch of facts and they can write it down on a test, they'll probably forget it in a couple days or a couple weeks. But if you can get them to actually work on the answer, how do you get the proper answer? Work through the process a little bit. They're, they're more bound to own the information for themselves. And some parables are cryptic on purpose so that the people hearing them have to work through them and, and kind of get at the meaning. This evening we encounter a parable that is actually fairly straightforward. Jesus isn't trying to be cryptic. He isn't trying to say something new. He isn't pulling a sleight of hand. He simply tells a story that would either deeply offend the people who are hearing him or encourage them. But whatever the emotional response to what Jesus has to say, he is hoping for a change of heart, a change of attitude. A response. So, with that, let's dig into this parable. Jesus begins comparing the kingdom of heaven to a king who decided to throw a banquet for his son, a wedding banquet. And the Greek word behind this word that the the king uh, threw a banquet for his son is actually the same word for creation. So literally, the king created a a banquet for his son's wedding. Uh, It's it's the same word used, like I said, in creation, but also in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul talks about us being new creations in Christ. That's the same word here. So the king is creating this banquet for his son. Now, I had the privilege of walking through several uh, marriages with many of you in this congregation and many who aren't here tonight, and one of the things that's common when uh, somebody's getting married is months and months before your wedding date, you send out a what? Save the date, right? Some of you did that, right? Yeah. Others didn't, and no one came to you. No, I was kidding. It's, it's typical to put out a save the date. Why? So that people, you know, people are busy. So if you have a summertime wedding or something, you want people six months in advance to block out that weekend so they don't plan any camping trips or anything like that, so they come to your wedding. The same was true in the ancient Near East. If a king or a village leader were throwing a large wedding party, they would send out kind of a save the date. Only The only difference is with contemporary save the dates, you're not asking anyone to RSVP yet usually. Uh, that comes with the invitation. But in the ancient Near East, the save the date had on it an RSVP. And here's why. There's two logistical reasons. If the king or a village leader is throwing a big party and they live in a world without refrigeration, they need to know pretty close to exactly how many people are going to be there. The Africa Bible Commentary, which is a compilation of entries from 70 African scholars, is helpful uh, for this uh, sociocultural background stuff. I quote, If only a few people could come, the host would prepare maybe a chicken or two. However, if more than 40 guests were coming, he would slaughter a calf or more. When all was ready, the host would send runners out to call the guests on the day of the feast. Okay, so logistics are important. The, the king wants to send out these save-the-dates to get a response 
so that he can know how many animals to slaughter and how much to prepare, right? You, you, you can't have cold cuts. You can't put things on cold storage. It's got to happen quick. Second, though, even though logistics are important, the lasting significance of the save the date was really the importance of being invited to the party in the first place. You see, large banquets and parties were vital to the social structure of the day. Uh, to be invited to a king's party was a great honor. And attending the party also gave honor to the king. So if you get invited to the king's party, it means you're special. The king wants you to come. And so, uh, it, but, but the same thing, there's some reciprocation. The king also gets honor by the amount of people who come to his party. So if the king invites you, you should be honored. And then you come to show honor because if this king has a rocking party, you know he's the man, right? So, uh, so it was a big deal. Uh, and plus, on top of all of those things, when you go to one of these social events, it also ups your status a little bit because everybody there who, knows, who sees you there knows that you got invited to the party. You must be something special just like they are something special. Here's the point. No one would refuse an invitation to the party of a king or a wedding party of a king except for the most serious circumstances, maybe a very recent death in the family or a severe personal illness or some other issue like that. Now, in our parable, it's assumed that the king has already sent out his save the dates. He's received his RSVPs. He knows who's supposed to be coming. He's slaughtered the proper amount of animals. He's got all the food ready. The only thing left to do now is to send his servants out to go call all the people. Okay, you, you said you were coming. The time is now. Come to the party. And that's where something shocking takes place in the parable. And to appreciate how shocking it is, this is an inconceivable situation. A person hearing this in the ancient world would be like, this would never happen. It would never happen that a king invites all of these people, they say, yes, I'm coming, and then when the servants go out to say it's time, they don't come. In the story, the people were eager to say yes to the save the date, but when time came to heed the call... They had other things going on. They went their own way to their farms or to their businesses, and some even had the gall to mistreat the king's slaves, and some of, some of them were even killed. You know, these flimsy excuses of farms and businesses, acts of violence against the king's slave, these are also acts of violence and disrespect to the king himself. So the king is enraged, and he sends his, sends his armies to destroy these rebels and these shameful guests who said yes and then refused to come. But then he's stuck with all this food. What do I do with all this food? And so he sends his slaves out back again. He goes, I don't really care. I'm paraphrasing who you get. Just go on the main highways and just grab people. And he sent them all over, even gathering suspicious people who are likely travelers or homeless, people from outside the community. And finally, his dining hall was filled with guests. And my guess is they were happy guests. Who expected on that day to be invited to the king's feast just walking down the road? Now, when the king comes to gaze over this crowd of joyous people eating, he notices a man who's not dressed appropriately, not dressed for the occasion. And he says, friend... How is it that you've come here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. 
And the king cast him out. The scripture says, bound hand and foot into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is language describing, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth describes utter regret. That moment you know you've made the wrong choice and you're past the point of no return. I wish I could take it back. So why does Jesus tell us this parable? What does it mean? I think the question of why Jesus told it might be answered in first looking at who he told it to. We know he's speaking to the religious leaders who just prior in the end of Matthew 21 were so offended at his teaching that the narrator tells us they wanted to kill Jesus and seize him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds liked Jesus. They were afraid to lay hands on Jesus. And then Matthew 22 begins with these words, Jesus spoke to them again. So the same audience. He's speaking to the religious leaders, but he's also saying this within earshot of his own disciples, which is why it is important for you and I, who are also his disciples. So what does it mean? What does it communicate? What does it ask of us? Now, as is common with God, and I want you to see just the gospel in how this is laid out. Before God asks anything of us in Scripture, even the Ten Commandments, everyone wants to focus on the ten things that we're supposed to do or not do, but before the Ten Commandments, God himself says, Hear, O Israel, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He begins with the gospel. The people of Israel never asked to be taken out of Egypt. God just came and saved them and intervened. I am the God who rescues when you're not looking for it. Now I give you stuff to do. So this God, before he asks anything of us, extends grace. And this parable is no exception. The parable begins with a king who creates a great wedding feast for his son. And That imagery of wedding feast is unmistakably, like if you're a first century religious leaders who know your scripture backward and forward, that imagery of wedding feast is laden with meaning. Just one of the examples is the scripture that Ian read tonight from Isaiah 25. Here's just a portion of it again. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. I like how he mentions wine twice. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears from faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And what we see here is a description in metaphorical language about the great day of the Lord, when there would be rejoicing and fine foods and wines in abundance, and there would be deliverance of the Lord for his people from all evil, from death itself. And most importantly, in this image of the banquet, who is the host? It's Yahweh himself. And the significance of that is not only are we getting this great feast, this great banquet, this great moment of deliverance, but we're getting all of this in the presence of God. That's the promise of the kingdom, is to be in God's presence as children. 
The coming of the kingdom, of God's deliverance, of God's reign, of God himself was what the people of Israel were looking for since their captivity in Babylon. The prophets wrote about it. The Psalms allude to it. The rabbis preached about it. And what Jesus is saying through this parable, and frankly so many others, is that the time has come, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and the banquet is ready. And the host has sent out his servants to tell everyone about this good news. And notice the joy involved in this announcement. First of all, how is the kingdom described? As a labor camp where God comes down and says, all right, I'm putting you guys to work? Or is it described as God coming down and now he's really going to get us in line? We've been screwing around and now God is coming back with his kingdom and it's no more fun times. Of course it's not. After all, they're invited to a wedding, not a seminar on tax law, right? I mean, this is, look at the metaphors. They're full of joy. In popular culture, I think people usually have a false view of God and his kingdom, viewing God as some kind of tyrannical dictator who's going to come in and impose his regime, and then it's no more fun. And maybe one of the artists that has captured this as well as any, at least from my generation, is the 80s band ACDC, who wrote Highway to Hell. In that song, they defiantly sing about the fun they're going to have when uh, they turn away from God and are driving down the highway to hell. After all, there's no stoplights or speed limits, and no one's going to tell us what to do on the highway to hell. Now, obviously, uh, I would say as a pastor of the God, preacher of the gospel, that their view of God and his kingdom is a bit skewed if they think it won't be fun when God comes on the one hand, and if they think hell is going to be more fun than the kingdom of God. That, I'm telling you that that's a wrong view. Okay, so in reality, of course, the, the, the gospel says that the opposite is true. God's kingdom is described as a party. Wine flowing, red meat on the bone, to quote Gimli, son of Glowen. Come on. It's anything but drab and drudgery. And besides the amazing party, the most important thing is that these folks get a call from the king who's inviting, him, inviting them to the party. The word there, call, kaleo, in the Greek, it's used five times in the first nine verses of this passage. And it's the same word that describes it when Jesus kaleos the gospel or the apostles kaleo the gospel, when they proclaim good news. The king sends his servants out to kaleo, to call the people to the banquet, to the gospel, to the good news. This invitation to the banquet isn't just an invitation to a party. It's to be invited into new life, into a new family. It is nothing short of a call to joy. And what have these folks done with it? First of all, we know that they're flat out unwilling to come. Now, this would have been a grave insult to the king since the reason they were getting the call from the slaves in the parable in the first place is because they've already responded affirmatively, yes, we're coming to your party. Now, after the food has been prepared in expectation of their coming, they refuse. Most kings would not be so merciful, but this king is gracious. He sent out his slaves again, calling the party guests to the party. He even says, hey, tell them how many oxen I've slaughtered. Tell them about the spread. Oh, they're going to want to come to this party. And then the excuses start pouring in. 
the leaders who are supposed to be shepherding Israel are implicated in that they are the ones Jesus is talking to. The parable, uh, in, in the parable, some were too busy. One with this field, one with this business. Both good things, by the way. Don't forget, Genesis 2, we are created to work. God prepared us and prepared work for us to do. Good work, good vocation. Work, vocation, investment in people and place can all be holy endeavors. But Dale Bruner, a scholar, writes these wise words. Legitimate occupations become sinister when they become preoccupations. Legitimate occupations become sinister when they are preoccupations. Take a moment just to consider the pace of your life. It might be, and I would wager to guess it is, filled with many, many good things. But are you free to surrender to Jesus, or are you too busy? Is there something that Jesus might be calling you to engage in, but you find yourself saying over and over, I can't, I've got too much going on right now, or this isn't the right season for me? One way to test yourself in this is to ask Am I experiencing the joy of the Lord on a regular basis? Am I experiencing the joy of the Lord on a regular basis? That doesn't mean everything's going fine in your life. In fact, the joy of the Lord often has very little to do with our circumstances and often has very little to do with our day-to-day happiness. The joy of the Lord has to do with Am I being used by God? Do I sense that my life is being used by God in a way that is pleasing to Him, in a way that is blessing others? Here's another question. Do I sense the affirmation of God? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. If not, I would ask you to consider what changes might you be able to make in order to join the party of Jesus? Now, that's assuming that you want to be part of the party in the first place. Some of the people in the story did not. Not only did they have excuses, they were out and out rebellious toward the king. Uh, they uh, they, They abused his slaves and then killed some of them. And the result is judgment on those who rebelled against the king. This is a not-so-veiled reference uh, to the prophets who were mistreated and abused and ignored over and over again by the religious leaders. It's a warning. Do what it takes to come to the party. Do what it takes to come to the party. You are invited, and you are invited. You need to hear that, that you are invited to this kingdom of God party because once the chosen ones rejected God, uh, the king's invitation, he opened up the door to all kinds of people, including riffraff like me and like you. Amen? Oh, I'm so happy about that. Uh, Again, that's the gracious heart of God on display. This passage is a wonderful reminder against being judgmental toward other people. You know, we might be tempted to look around this church or any church and say, this place is full of hypocrites. You could do that, and it, it won't be hard to find them. It won't be hard to find them at all. Yes, hypocrites are in the church, 
Yes, you're looking at a sinner right now. The difference is, disciples are hypocrites who hate being hypocrites. The true church is made up of recovering sinners, people with repentant hearts, people who recognize our poverty of spirit and consistently find ourselves dependent on the grace of God through Jesus the Christ. That's what the church is made up of. The church is not a group of perfect people. Sorry to burst your bubble on that. If you're constantly uh, discouraged and frustrated by the people sitting around you, that's why. The church is not perfect. It's a group of flawed people who have learned to trust in Jesus for our forgiveness and new life. And new life, improving life, should be our mark. Not perfection, but stumbling in the right direction. You know, there ought to be changes happening inside us as we stumble in the right direction with Jesus, into his grace, into his grace, into his grace. The truth of the matter is that God loves all people, invites all people to the table, but when we heed his call and receive his grace, we also receive his Holy Spirit. We are washed clean in the waters of baptism, and from that point on, you and I are described as new creations. God meets us where we are and then leads us to be new people in the power of his Holy Spirit. To say that simply, God rescues us to remake us. It's something vital to remember, but to put it simplistically, churches generally lean in one of two unhealthy directions. Again, this is overly simplistic, but go with me. On the one hand, there are churches that are overly judgmental, churches that you would feel uncomfortable attending if you didn't dress the right way or know the proper things to say or not say, churches that lean towards self-righteousness and a false sense of holiness. That is, a holiness based on externals, like dress or political affiliation or devotion to particular theologians, but not other ones. And certainly, you wouldn't be able to ask certain questions in this type of setting. These churches need to learn from the heart of the Father that His love knows no bounds, that all are invited to the table. But on the other hand, and as often as a reaction against uh, churches of judgmentalism, there are those churches who are so open and affirming of any lifestyle, moral choices, and behavior that they have forgotten all about God's intent behind the gospel. Yes, God meets everyone where they are. He met me where I was, which is not a good place. That is good news. Thank the Father He meets us wherever we are. But that is only part of the gospel. Once we receive forgiveness, we are to be disciples, or students is another way of saying that, of Jesus. We are to become more and more like Jesus in his character qualities. You know, you never see a story in the Bible where Jesus doesn't accept someone who's repentant. But the people Jesus accepts in the Bible are repentant, right? If you just come as you are and think you don't have anything at all that needs changing in your character, Jesus can't really help you very much. And when Jesus meets a person in Scripture who comes to him in need, whether from illness or demon possession or sin, his first move is always to welcome them, but his second move is always to heal, to make a person whole 
to open blind eyes, even if it means seeing the hard realities of life, to unstop deaf ears, even if at times it means hearing the hard demands of the gospel, to forgive, if only to say, now go and sin no more. You see, when we look at the Jesus of Scripture, he always is accepting of the repentant heart, and then he is transformative. He wants to make us whole people. I think this parable in Matthew 22 is a good corrective between those two extremes of, of judgmentalism on the one hand and really powerlessness or, or, or powerless liberalism on the other hand. The king invites all to the banquet of love and grace. He invites the good and the evil, but he takes note of the man who is not dressed for the occasion. The king is confronting this man's disregard for the situation. If you're invited to the wedding feast of a king's son, you don't come in jean cutoffs and the tuxedo t-shirt. Which, by the way, that could be a great Halloween costume. <laughs> but you don't, you don't come to the king's son's wedding dressed like that. You come dressed for the occasion. You know, and even if you can't afford much, you can afford to wash yourself and to come appropriately. What this means is, when we've responded to the call of grace and accepted the call of forgiveness and new life in the kingdom, we're to put on new clothes. The clothes, for example, of Colossians 3, that could be a starting place. It goes like this. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, in other words, those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How then should we respond to this parable? First, some of you may be here this evening who have yet to RSVP in the first place. You hadn't had the call yet to come to the party of rescue and deliverance. Hear this good news. You are invited. The Father, the creator of heaven and earth, has sent his Son to die as atonement for our sin. He rose from the grave defeating death. He will make all things new, sum up all our broken storylines and all the sorrows and pain that have been done to us and that we've caused. He will make it all new. He invites you to join him in his future plans of new creation. Would you respond to his RSVP or to his invitation? Second, for those of you who have said yes to following Jesus, what are you wearing to the party? What would the king say about the clothes of your heart? If you're convicted about the state of your heart, take comfort. That's actually a good sign because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we do at this point, if we would love that character of Christ to come upon us, is to pause, say thank you for the invitation, and Lord, dress me with new clothes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for inviting us to your banquet, for inviting us to become part of your kingdom. 
Lord, we, we know from this story and so many others, our invitation isn't based on, uh, on who we are or what we've done. That our invitation was paid for through your son Jesus, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Lord, help us to come to you humbly and boldly. You declare through Jesus that we are your children, your, your sons and your daughters. You invite us to new life, and I pray, Lord, that, that we would not only find forgiveness of sin and, and hope of, uh, of rescue someday, but, Lord, that you would, you would put on new clothes on, in our hearts now. Holy Spirit, help us to die to our selfishness and our pride and clothe us with those things from the book of Colossians and so many other places like love and humility, gentleness with one another, kindness, Lord, graciousness. Lord, when people encounter us, I pray that they would have encountered part of you and your character and your goodness. Amen.